One of the really big news stories this week has been uh, Sir Ranulph Fiennes on the top of Mount Everest. I don't know if you've seen any of the photographs or images or the video clips of him. It has been quite amazing. Uh, a 65-year-old man who has been on uh, every one of the, the major challenges that the, uh, the globe has to offer. Uh, Ricky was reminding me that he did a uh, global uh, challenge of seven marathons on, in seven days in seven continents. So that is the sort of guy he is. Uh, he has uh, suffered severe frostbite, and he uh, decided he couldn't live with the pain in his fingers anymore, so he went down to the shed at the back of his garden and, and cut a few of his fingers off just to get away with, uh, without having that pain. So he is quite an amazing man, uh, facing up to massive challenges. And uh, there he is himself, and this week at the age of 65, for the third attempt, he made it to the top of Mount Everest. Now, whenever people were talking to him this week, he explained that he reached the summit of Everest by imagining it wasn't there. He said he was prepared simply to plod on forever. So he had his goal, he knew he was going where he was going, but he put that out of his mind and he was prepared to plod on forever. Now, in the Sunday Times this afternoon, Jeremy Clarkson has his own article, and he had a take on Sir Ronald Fine's achievement. And this is what he says. The rest of us are so very different. I, for instance, want to learn how to play the piano. But that means buying one, getting somebody to bring it round, finding a book of tunes that I like, and don't have too many sharps and flats in them. And all things considered, I can't be bothered. I want to start collecting butterflies. But he says it's easier to watch TV. He wants to push his body and expand his mind. But it's easier not to be bothered. He has a tree in a huge pot delivered by the delivery man. It's still sitting at the back of his garage where they put it two years ago. And he has pipes in his lawn where the unfinished fountain was meant to be. He sums up saying, I'm never going to build the fantastic train set that exists only in my mind. I'm never going to clear Cambodia of landmines, and neither are you, because you're sitting around reading the papers, same as you did last week and the week before. And then he finishes off by saying, I know we can't all be Ronald Fines. We can't do everything, but don't you wish that sometimes you could find the time from the drudge of the humdrum to do something. Now, as we have looked at the book of Galatians, Paul has been telling us for a lot of the book what not to do, not to be slaves of the law. But now in chapter 5, he's really starting to focus our thinking on what we are meant to do, on doing something. And that's setting us free to love and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Paul wants his readers to experience the Everest summit of a life lived for God, not under the slavery of the law, but set free to possess the kingdom of God. Now, we've already learned two things about the meaning of love in this letter. First, love was expressed by Christ's giving of himself for us, and that was in chapter 2, verse 20. 
Second, love is the expression of true faith. And that's in chapter 5, verse 6. Now we learn that love is expressed by serving one another. When the object of our faith is Christ who loved us, we are motivated and empowered to express his kind of love to others. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a command to love ourselves. It is a command to take our natural, already existing love for self and make it the measuring stick, the measuring rod of our love for others. This is really tough stuff. What does it mean? Well, it means that we want to feed the hungry as much as we want to feed ourselves when we get hungry. It means that we want to find our neighbor a job in as much a way as we're glad to have a job ourselves. We want to help our fellow students get A grades as much as we want to get those top grades ourselves. We want to help the person who has broken down on the motorway as much as we're glad that we have not broken down on the motorway ourselves. I'm saying that we're up in Macrofelt this afternoon and I did pass three people on the motorway. And I felt a bit like that, but it didn't stop. So, but I kids in the car, I couldn't stop. But um, we want to use, do we want to share Christ with our neighbor as much as we are glad to know Christ ourselves? Do we want to use all the creativity and energy and perseverance to do good things for others that we use in doing good things for ourselves? Do we want to care about what happens to others as much as we care about what happens to ourselves? Can you imagine what our church here would be like if we were all like that? You look at the people beside you, to the left, to the right, in front of you, behind you, and you felt the same longing for their happiness that we feel for our own. Not only would the law be fulfilled here in church, but this place would be filled with joy. And the people inside our family of believers in Kirkpatrick and outside would see the glory of God unmistakably present in our midst. And people would be attracted to Jesus because of us. So how can we do this something? How can we move beyond Clarkson's lists of excuses and start our own journey? Well, we're going to look in Galatians 5 and look at verse 16 or 8 to 18 to start putting us in the picture. So if you just look along with that. But I say, live, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. These are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Loving others more than ourselves is so contrary to our natural inclinations that it seems almost impossible to do. How can we get up in the morning and feel as much concern for uh, others' needs as we do for our own? If this is the Christian life, 
caring for others as I care for myself, then it is hard, really hard. And we could end up feeling hopeless that we will ever be able to live it out. But Paul has an answer to this discouragement. And it's found in learning to walk by the Spirit. If the Christian life looks too hard, we must remember that we're not called to live it by ourselves. We must live it by the Spirit of God. The command of love is not a new legalistic burden laid on our back, weighing us down. It is what happens freely when we walk in the Spirit. People who try to love without relying on God's Spirit always end up trying to fill their own emptiness rather than sharing their fullness. That's the difference. And so love ceases to be love. Love is not easy for us, but the good news is that it's not primarily our work. It's God's work in us. We must simply learn to walk in the Spirit. And that's what we're going to try to look at tonight. The what, the why, and the how. What is this walking by the Spirit? Why is it crucial to walk by the Spirit? And how practically can we walk by the Spirit? So first of all, what is walking by the Spirit? There are two images in the context which shed light on the meaning of this walking in the Spirit. The first one that Paul uses is in verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And what he's doing there is he's emphasizing that the Spirit is doing the leading. It's the Spirit's work, not ours. It's not like a cheerleader at the front getting us all whipped up into a frenzy. It's a leader like a locomotive on a train. We do not follow him in our own strength. We are led by his power. So walk by the Spirit means staying hooked on to the divine source of power and going wherever he leads us to. The second image of our walking in the Spirit is backed up by another of this week's top news events. And it's something that I find very compelling indeed. Uh, and that's the Chelsea Flower Show. And here's one of my personal highlights. This is Rachel Detaim uh, working away in her Chelsea show garden. And whenever she invests the work and keeps things going together, this is the outworking of her efforts. And there they are. So whenever you look at the incredible fruitfulness, the abundance, the beauty of the flowers on show at Chelsea... It's not happening by accident. The amount of dedication and work and investment that goes into that is massive. And in verse 22, Paul gives us this second image. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, etc. If our Christian walk is to be a walk of love and joy and peace, then walking by the Spirit must mean that we have to bear the fruit of of the Spirit. But again, it's the Spirit's work being emphasized and not our own efforts. He bears the fruits. Paul probably got the image that he talks about here 
from what Jesus said to his best friends on the final meal he shared with them in the Last Supper. If you think back to the book of John, John 15, there's Jesus sitting around the table with the disciples, and he says this to them, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So, walk by the Spirit means abiding in the vine, keeping yourself securely attached to the living Christ. Don't cut yourself off from the flow of the Spirit. So in answer to our first question then, what is this walking by the Spirit? We answer, it is being led by the Spirit, and it is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is emphasized, yet the command is for us to do something. Our wills are deeply involved. And we must want to be coupled to the locomotive of God's Spirit pulling us along. We must want to stay attached to the vine that is Jesus. And there are things that we can do to keep us attached to the flow of God's power. We're going to look at those in a minute. Okay, before we go to that, why is it crucial to walk by the Spirit? So we've seen what it is to walk by the Spirit. Why is it crucial to do it? Well, again, in Galatians, it gives us two reasons. One of those is in verse 16, and the other one is in verse 18. In verse 16, the incentive for walking by the Spirit is that when you do this, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's a promise that if we walk in the Spirit, we won't satisfy the desires of the sinful nature. The sinful nature is the me, the ego, the center which feels an emptiness and uses the resources of its own power to try to fill up that emptiness. The sinful nature is the I who tries to satisfy me with anything but God's mercy. Verse 24, it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And if you look at verse 20, of chapter 2 says I have been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so in chapter 2 verse 20 says that since the old nature that sinful nature that old me that central ego is crucified there's a new person living, a new I. And the peculiar thing about this new person living in me is that it's living by faith. The life I live in the here and now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if that's true, then it's not surprising that there's a little bit of a conflict going on here. 
There's a war going on between the flesh, the old me, and God's spirit. It's a problem at first glance that there's a lively war between our old sinful nature and the spirit in the Christian, according to verse 17. For it says in verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. The main thing to learn from this verse is that Christian life is a struggle, a struggle within. Just because the old nature is still in evidence, and I still have a lot of that left in me, it does not necessarily mean that you aren't a Christian, though. A Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the Spirit. And if we're not experiencing that sort of a conflict, then I think that we need to have a serious spiritual health check. If we're not experiencing day by day that conflict where the Spirit of God in us is challenging and causing us to rethink our old sinful nature, well then that's a sign that the old sinful nature has the upper hand and is winning the war inside us. So it's a good thing that we have a war within us. It's not great that there's a sense in us that we're fine, that the war is over, because that war is continuing for the whole of our lives. The Spirit has landed to do battle with the old nature. So take heart if you feel sometimes inside that there's a real battlefield inside. It's a sign that you are being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Not that you have no bad desires, but you are at war with them. But whenever you look at 16 and 17, it's not just about the conflict. It's not just about the war. Whenever you read them, the main thing that comes through is that there is a victory for the Spirit. Verse 16 says that when you walk by the Spirit, you will not let those bad desires come to maturity. When you walk by the Spirit, you nip the desires of the old sinful nature in the bud. New God-centered desires start to take over and crowd out the old you. Verse 16 promises victory over those desires. The flesh is as good as dead. Its doom is sure. We promise victory in the spirit. But there are always going to be pockets of resistance. The gorillas of the flesh will not lay down their arms, and you need to fight against those daily. And the only way to do that is by the spirit. And that's what it means to walk by the spirit. So live that he gives victory over the dwindling resistance movement of your old sinful, uh, sinful nature. And that is the first reason that we, that we walk by the Spirit. So that the flesh is conquered. Your old sinful nature is conquered. The second reason then that we walk by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. Sorry, the second reason we walk by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit is found in verse 18. So if you look at verse 18, you'll see if you're led by the Spirit you are no longer under the law. 
This does not mean that you don't have to keep on fulfilling the law. We've thought about that a lot in the last couple of weeks as we've looked at Galatians. What the verse 13 and 14 said, through love be servants of one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one command. You shall, you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. Romans 8, verse 3 and 4 says, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Therefore, not being under law does not mean that we don't have to keep on fulfilling the law, It means that when we're led by the locomotive of God's Spirit, whenever we let God's Spirit take our lives and control them, then we start on a railroad line, a railroad track, and we can keep going in a joyful way. We're not being left on our own to climb and to do the business of pulling ourselves along. When we're led by the Spirit, we're not under the punishment or the oppression of the law. Because what the law requires, the Spirit produces. So we don't have to put ourselves under a sense of oppression, a sense of struggle always. The Spirit produces love in us. And Paul focuses in on that in verse 22. He says, first, and the all-encompassing fruit of the Spirit is love. And in verse 14, he says again, fulfill the whole law, and law and the spirit of and love is the fulfillment of the whole law. In other words, how, we, how can we be under oppression or punishment of the law when the very things that the law requires are popping out of our lives like fruit on the branches of our lives? We're set free. The law no longer is enslaving us. The spirit's work in us is popping out from our lives the very things that fulfill the law. The Spirit is the, fulfill, is the fullness that overflows in love. Therefore, it conquers the emptiness that drives the flesh and it spills out in acts of love which fulfill the law. Now, that's all a wee bit wordy. I hope you've got your head around that. So, how do we do it? How do we walk by the Spirit? Well, this is whenever... Uh, started thinking it through with Jane the other night and thinking through practical ways and looking up a few of the uh, books that we had and thinking through, well, how can we actually achieve this thing of walking by the Spirit? Well, Paul has just spent the first four chapters warning the guys in Galatia that it's not about keeping laws. Christian life is not rules, not rituals. So what is the deal? We're not meant to be molded into good living robots. So how do we walk by the Spirit? Well, we can only walk by the Spirit. I've put this into five steps. Step one, if we have received God's saving plan for our lives, and if we've made Jesus our forgiver of sins and our Savior, how can we have a Spirit-controlled life if we aren't Jesus's? How can we have the Spirit in our lives if we have never confessed our sins and made Jesus the Lord of our lives. 
Well, we can't. The Spirit needs to move into our lives. We need to give Jesus first place in our lives. We need to know Jesus if we want a Spirit-controlled life. Step two. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to control us. You've probably seen people who have had too much to drink, too much alcohol in their system. Instead of them being normal and controlled in the way that they operate, they're brash, they're uninhibited, they're out of control. The alcohol has got into their system, it's got between the junctions of their cells and their brain, and it's interfering with their normal control and function. So their mind and their body behave differently. We are instructed as disciples of Jesus not to be drunk on wine, but to be filled and controlled by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just as potent a force to control our lives if we let him influence our minds in the same way as alcohol can influence minds. And these are strengths or the fruit of the Spirit at work in us. A compassion for others, love, a delight about life in our hearts, joy, inner contentment, peace, perseverance and patient endurance, long-suffering, thoughtfulness to others without seeking reward, kindness, an intolerance and growing hate of sin, goodness, a commitment to God, family and others, faithfulness, a consideration for the feelings of others, gentleness, inner strength to keep emotional, mental, and physical weaknesses in check, self-control. But the growth of these is not automatic. Already said, we are still at war with our old natural self. And this is where our wills need to come into play. We need to constantly set our minds on what the Spirit desires. As soon as we realize that we have sinned, we must prioritize confession of our sin and receive forgiveness and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. The result of not dealing with sin is always to grieve the Holy Spirit inside us and block his work on this list of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These fruits. We also leave our lives open to the growth of the alternative list. The alternative list is pretty shocking reading. And I know to my shame how easily some of Paul's lists of acts of the sinful nature can take root and grow inside my heart, inside my mind, if I allow my mind to drift and if my sins are left unchallenged and unconfessed. And that's a horrible list. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies. But I also know from God's word that I am the temple of God's spirit. He is in me all the time and ready to forgive whenever I come to him with my confession. Step three then, reading the Bible regularly. 
It's interesting to read in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, that the results of a spirit-filled life are a joyful heart, thankful spirit, and submissive attitude. If you look in Colossians then, Colossians 3, 16 to 18, the result of a Bible, Scripture, God's Word-filled life. Well, what are they? Joyful heart, thankful spirit, submissive attitude. They're identical. The more that we put of the Word of God into our minds, the easier it will be for us to think godly thoughts and have godly emotions and desires. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly in each one of us. So how do we do that? Well, buy a cheap little notebook. Set it beside our Bibles. Pick a book, maybe a short one like Jude or Second Peter. And for the rest of this week to the end of May, read our way through it again and again. And by the end of this week, by the end of the month of May, we should know that book fairly well. And we should have been able to jot down in our little notebook the lessons it's teaching us and the questions and challenges it's creating. Then in June, pick a longer one. Maybe there's a discouragement in your life. Maybe you're an Arsenal supporter or something. Well, read through Philippians for 30 days. Start to get to grips with it. The encouraging truths found inside this book. Write them down. Let them fill your mind. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. If we can walk in the Spirit in our mental and spiritual attitudes, then we'll start to walk in the Spirit in our actions as well. Step four, start to develop a continuous mental attitude of prayer. Pray without ceasing. Pray always. In all your ways, consider him. It's how we really match our wills to God's will. On a moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis. And step five, seek to do God's will. Walking in the flesh is easy. We just do what we want. Paul has already outlined the life we will have, though, if we do this. And in verse 21, he reminds us of the sort of reward we will reap. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If we walk with the Spirit, we will not want to seek first our own will for our own life. But by faith, we will honestly seek to do the will of God as he reveals it to us in his word and in prayer. Our motivation is, of course, not law. As Paul has been pointing out in the previous four and a half chapters, It is a response to the love of Christ and his work on the cross. As we finish this evening, let us reflect on the call to live life by the Spirit and respond by resolving to implement the five principles of keeping in step with the Spirit. Remember the life-saving work of Jesus and identify ourselves as his. 
allow the Holy Spirit to control our minds. Read our Bibles regularly. Develop a continuous attitude of prayer. Seek to do God's will. This is how we plod forever. How we love our neighbor forever. How we fulfill the law. How we see the kingdom of God grow in our own lives and in the lives of others. It's how we reach that Everest summit and how we hear eventually, well done, good and faithful servant. Remember, no matter how much we have failed in the past or will do in the future, we have never nor never will be unloved by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's where I want us to finish. And we're going to have a time of reflection as we see a little video and listen to the words of a song by Michael W. Smith. Show.
Show that I am 